find your seat. We want to welcome you to Veritas Community Church in Dayton. My name is Dan, and uh, it's, it's such a joy to come in in fellowship and a gathering like this to hear the prayers and, to, and the praises of God's people and the scripture readings that are just drenched in gospel and hope and joy. It's easy in one sense to be in this kind of environment and move into the Word of God and proclaim the Word of God over God's people. It's an honor, and that's where we are here this morning. For those of you who don't have a Bible, we offer Bibles, so you'll see them at the end of your pews, uh, benches, I'm not sure what we call these, um, but on page 566, if you need help finding the passage, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. One paragraph, two pictures, one purpose is what we're going to be doing today. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, and I'd like to pray first, read second, and then preach for his honor and our joy. Let's pray. Father, the only way that I can preach, the only way that we can hear, the only way that all of us can submit gladly to your heart is for your enabling love through your spirit, in your word, into our lives. And so that is what I pray. So open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. Soften our hearts that the word of God, the very seed that you sow, will land on good, fertile soil, namely our hearts. And then may our hands and our feet get up and start moving in a way that's honoring to you throughout this week in worship of you and service to others. So help us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer and all of God's people said. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, starting up in verse 23, we read, <clears throat> Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Oh, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. 
What we're going to be looking at this morning is Paul's desire to move churches, to move churches in Galatia, likely in the southern part of Galatia, some churches, many churches, are going to move churches from foolishness to Christ. From chapter 3, verse 1, you could read that, over to chapter 3, verse 29, Christ. The foolishness of verse 1 was quite simple. We've been in chapter 3 for a month. Some of you are starting to pick up what I am putting out right now before I even say it. The foolishness is Christ plus something equals the abundant life. That's foolishness. Christ is sufficient. The gospel is all we need. But the Galatian churches and Veritas, we can start moving towards, yes, I understand that through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, I'm justified freely. Okay, I get that. I'm happy that I'm favored fully and forever. I'm utterly forgiven. I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. I can stand before a holy God without terror, but with delight and a fear of wonder. And I love you and will worship you because I am attached to you by faith. All that stuff is yes, yes, and yes. And then the daily grind starts occurring. The temptations start coming. And Judaizers, that's in Galatia, but there are Judaizer likes in our world today, say, yes, Christ is good, but not enough. And so, rituals and regulations start moving in and blending in and amalgamating with the gospel. That's foolishness if we start believing that. And so this message this morning is to move on your hearts, to move you away from foolishness, into Christ, in whom we have our final rest and relish. So that's where we're going. Paul does this in one way. He has a word picture, actually two word pictures. The first word picture you'll find in verses 23 and 24, and we'll call this the B.C. living word picture, the before Christ lifestyle. He's going to put out Two ways to live. And the first one in verses 23 and 24 is in a word picture. And in this word picture, we'll see two images. And he puts that before the churches. And then juxtaposed right next to this old picture, this black and white, awful-looking old picture, is this colored, beautiful, commanding, compelling picture of AC living, after Christ living, okay? So all I'm going to do is lift off the pages of Scripture, what is there, and show you two pictures. And I'm going to ask the Lord to move on our hearts in such a way that you'll see picture number one, and you will say in your heart, that is awful, and I loathe it and turn from it. And right after that, in verses 24 through 29, or 25 through 29, the next picture comes. And you'll start looking at that picture. And in this picture, there'll be three images. And your heart will start moving towards this picture. This picture. And you'll say, that is awesome. I love him and follow him. 
So there's going to be a turning away and a turning towards and a trusting in. And that's going to be the application all through the next few minutes. I didn't commit myself, did I? So, sound good? We're in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. There will be two pictures with one purpose, namely repentance and fresh faith in Jesus for refreshment in His grace. So the situation in first century with these churches in perhaps southern Galatia were beginning to think that the better life required adding the law to Christ. We've been listening about that and studying that for some months now. They begin to believe that Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection and glorious ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit was just simply not enough. There were false teachers among them known as Judaizers telling them that they needed to add to Jesus Christ. And after they performed good deeds and certain formalities, well, your sins are forgiven, your lives are favored, and your future is fully secured. As long as you just keep doing that adding to the Christ. When they met the standards, they could have confidence that I am accepted by the righteous, just, holy God. So in response to this teaching, the Apostle Paul forcefully said that this Christ plus something equals everything. Foolishness needs to be rejected. And once again, the clear, compelling, lucid gospel will be before your eyes. And he's doing this to work on our hearts and move us towards the Christ. So what are these two pictures? Well, the first one is the awful, loathsome picture. This would be considered, we are in Christ, we have received Him, we're walking by faith, and then we are starting to have this tacit notion that this just isn't enough. I need to reach back and get some traditions. I need to reach back and get some certain standards and regulations and then pour it into Christ, and that lifestyle will be more fulfilling. And so in verses 23 and 24, he gives us two images to start working on our hearts to turn away from this kind of foolishness. The first one you'll see in verse 23, I'm going to call it prison. In prison, there are um, phrases in verse 23. You'll see them held captive under the law. It's kind of like a house arrest. Keep in mind that before Christ came to the earth, the Israelites were under the Mosaic covenant in the Mosaic economy, and there was this external restraint upon the nation. Their hearts and minds were, did not have a propensity to move towards Yahweh of the Old Testament. Rather, they, started, they were bending towards idolatry and covetousness. And so God, through this code, would, would cage them in and hold them somewhat from going off the cliff this way or that way. Okay, And so here in this scripture here, he calls it this confinement under restraint. This 
nation of Israel did not have the ability nor the desire to follow Yahweh in his commands and in his ways. And he was using Israel as a showcase, if you will, to all the nations that this is who I am. I am Yahweh. I have characteristics. I have attributes. You will know me by my people on earth. And so he put down this law to confine. But notice in verse 23, it says, this caging of the people was temporary. It says in verse 23, until, you see that word? Until the coming faith would be revealed. The coming faith would be revealed. Now, if you kind of look that up and do a little bit of study on your own, you'll see that there's two basic understandings of that. One might see it as this subjective faith that, that we put our trust in God through Christ, and that's what he's talking about, the coming faith that is to be revealed. And certainly, all through Galatians, it talks about that kind of faith, right? That saving faith, we know that. And throughout the New Testament, you hear that over and over again. But if we just are confined to that kind of interpretation, it doesn't really fit with verse 23 and 24. Because in the Old Testament, you'll see that most of the nation of Israel were recalcitrant, were hardened, were following their own ways, and they were on this leash, the Mosaic Law, and they were on this, this, this harness holding them back from what they really wanted to do. But in the midst of that, we see this remnant, it was called. People whose hearts were changed due to regeneration, and they looked to Yahweh and said, we don't know how you're going to forgive us fully and forever. We don't know how you're going to favor us completely. But our sacrificial system gives us a little hint. There's going to be a lot of blood, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of priestly offerings, and we don't quite know how all that matches, but we trust you and your provision. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 11. So, so with that in mind, and you come back to verse 23, it's hard to kind of put that subjective faith into this verse. There, there's another interpretation. We'll call it objective faith outside of ourselves. And so verse 24 seems to say something similar, if not synonymous, with verse 23. In other words, when you see until the coming faith, and then you read in verse 24, until Christ came, you start looking at that possibly what he's referring to is the new covenant. Possibly what he is saying here is the coming faith refers to the new covenant now is in place through the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now the new covenant is in place. The new covenant now has come. I believe that that's what he is referring to. The new covenant is in place, and now we have something stupendous for the churches in Galatia and the churches in Dayton and in our own homes. So what we do not want to do is go back out from Christ, out from the new covenant into the Mosaic old covenant to find our life. And the, the way we're going to do that is to look at this picture and notice that this is a prison. 
The second image is a little bit more difficult perhaps to come to terms with. The ESV calls it guardian. Do you see that? Some of your versions will call it tutor. Don't think that that's overly helpful, but we can work with it. Some versions will call it guide. But underneath this word is pedagogos. Don't write it down. Don't even think about that. But that's the word that's behind guardian or tutor or guide. And what's a pedagogos anyway? Can't even pronounce that silly word. Well, a pedagogos was a slave. In the Roman world, he was a slave. He was a grown male, and he was a slave to the master of this estate. Okay? The master of the estate had children. And children need a lot of attention. And the Pidagogos would come and keep order with the children. He wasn't the teacher, but he guided these children into the standard and the responsibilities that the master said the children needed in order to learn and grow. So did you brush your teeth? Did you get to school on time? Did you sit upright? Did you do your homework? Did you, did you, did you, did you, did you? And so he would come with two things. In one hand, he would have the master's standard. And so he would have that standard, and he would watch the kids, and everything is fine, rank and file, stay there. But you know what kids do. You know what adults do. They break rank. <laughs> you go, what are you doing? So he carries another thing called a stick. A standard and a stick. And what he's doing is just keeping the kids in line, right? So he has the perfection and he has the penalty and he applies it to the children. That's the pedagogos. That's the guardian. Maybe to reach our hearts a little bit more closely than just an uh, image. Don't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that same word again. He doesn't use it very often, but in 1 Corinthians 4, he does. And in verse 15, he's talking to a wayward church, and he says, don't you know that you have many guides? There's our word. But you will have only one father. I am your father in Christ through the gospel. So now, Stay with me. You have guide and father. And then in verse 21, he talks about the activities of those two people. He then ends his argument by saying, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to come with a... Yeah, just that rod. Or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Make the connection, folks. The guide in the rod is under law by works. Do you really want to go into prison and be whipped? The law calls for that which it cannot create, and it holds us to a standard which it cannot give us the inward desire and ability to perform. But the Father with a spirit of gentleness and love, corrects, guides. Do you see the connection? 
So we're leaving picture number one. My hope and prayer is that we can see the invisible realities of the reality that if we are in Christ, if we have turned from our sins and trusted Christ, we have been baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed with Him, we are safe. We are saturated with His grace. Do not look over your shoulder back to the law as a way of growing in grace and growing in maturation and growing in sanctification. Otherwise, you're saying, please put me back into prison with the whip. That's picture number one. But now he puts it side by side. Have you ever seen those before and after pictures? Jenny Craig kind of thing? You know, and this haggard lady, 50 pounds overweight, black and white picture going, I used to be. And then the, the color picture, she just lost 50. Her hand is on her newly formed hip, and she's just like this. You know, that in one sense, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. I hope that image doesn't take you away from the text. So 25 through 29, here's the other picture. The glossy, compelling, beautiful, resplendent color picture of life in Christ is awesome life with the Father in the family headed towards the fortunes. That's the summary of 25 through 29. I'll say it again. Life in Christ. Now we're going outside of life in the law. And now life in Christ is awesome life. With the Father in the family and we're headed toward the fortunes. Let's take a look at it. Found in verse 25, I believe you'll see that. First in verse 26... You'll, you'll notice some language Paul uses. He uses sons of God through faith. And then he goes on by stating that in Christ you are sons of God. Now the implication is as important as explicit teaching in Scripture. Just make sure you understand the implications are rooted in that objective truth in the Scriptures. But there's an implication here, right? If we are all sons and daughters of God, that makes him father. And later on, a week or two, Pastor Garrison likely will be up here expounding chapter 4, verse 6, which is a most intimate, wondrous truth that in Christ we have a father who was the creator and redeemer of his people and we now have access to Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that our hearts can cry out, Abba, Father. That's a very intimate term to say, Papa. I was here this morning putting up what you're sitting on along with another team. And Pastor Garrison is over here not helping us. And, and his daughter comes running in. And you had to be here to really appreciate it. But Lavinia said, oh, Papa, 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 Papa. And she's trying to get around people and benches. And then there's an embrace. Oh, would that be awesome to see Veritas experiencing that reality and that activity that we would move towards God like that. 
we are in Christ. This is an awesome reality because we are with the Father. Secondly, notice with me verse 27, or excuse me, 28, I think it is. And now he, he starts talking about baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ. And so once we are by faith in Christ, united to Christ, we are fully forgiven, fully favored, clothed in his righteousness. And then we look up and we start looking around horizontally. And what do we see? Exactly who I see right now. We see siblings. Now, I hope this accesses your heart because some of you go, siblings? I want to live with my siblings? But, oh, these siblings are awesome because they're in Jesus Christ. We have brothers and sisters. We are in a new covenant family where we will find love from our siblings We will not find division in our family. When there is division, we quickly make peace and resolve divisions. Because if you read this passage, you'll see about three times he says, one, one, one. We're all one in Christ. There's a unity amidst diversity that is staggering, helpful to our lives, and glorifying to God as he created this new family. And so when we are sinning, one of our siblings in Christ will confront us. When we are suffering, one of our siblings in Christ will comfort us. When we're afraid, one of our siblings will just simply sit with us. When we are, and you fill in the blank, there's the family. And notice there's three categories there. Did you you hear that when I read that? So you got Jews and Greeks. It's very characteristic in the New Testament that those are the two categories. So we'll we'll call this ethnicity. And so you have the Jews, and then you have the ethne, the the nations all over the the earth. And so you have a, a, a variety of ethnicity in Christ. Ethnicity will not divide us. And then it goes into slaves and free. See that? In Christ, socioeconomic, does not define us, does not divide us. Amen? We don't live in a caste system. We don't despair on certain people or elevate certain people because of socioeconomics. There's unity in this family, and that is a wondrous, awesome reality that we need. And lastly, gender. Is there gender wars in this room? I certainly hope not. Because whether it's male or female, we're all one in Christ. There are distinctions, there are roles, but this passage isn't addressing that. What this is addressing is we are equal wherever we came from in this world. Whatever our dads and moms and grandparents and great-grandparents, and we are totally equal whether we have a hundred million. Ah, that's not a good... Whether we have $1,000 or $1, we are just side by side here, folks, whether we're male or female. That's the point of this. And so, life in Christ, still putting up picture number one, or picture number two here, is awesome life. Because we are with the Father, in the family, and now we are headed toward the fortunes.
The fortunes we could see is in verse 29. And I have circled the word heirs. Heirs or inheritors, you will see, is like a biblical theology all through the Old Testament and New Testament. If we took time to unpack this storyline, it would at least take us back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. The Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, you can read it in chapter 12, verses 1 through right around 7. You'll see a lot of promises, one of which in verse 7 is, I will give you the land. You will inherit the land. And so when you read the Old Testament, you see God's people being led into a little strip of real estate, a, a, a physical place known as Palestine. It's on the the western side of the Middle East. It's a very small place. It's, it's less than the size of New Jersey. If any of you have been over there, it's spectacular in terms of culture and history and all sorts of things biblical. And yet you kind of go, this is really unimpressive. This is small. But there's a physical place that was promised to the Israelites, but please don't stop there. These physical localities are a type of something immense and paradisiacal. Funky word for the Garden of Eden on steroids. This is just lush and plush and wonderful. It's not just a little sliver of real estate. And so it was fulfilled when Christ came but now we look around Xenia Avenue and we go, where's this land? I'm not quite seeing it today. We still need to wait. The first coming and the second coming, we live in the comings. And we await not the fulfillment, but the consummation of that fulfillment in the second coming of Christ where he ushers in the new heavens and new earth. Read Revelation 21 and 22 slowly. In this place, God resides with his people. In this place, he wipes every tear from their eyes. In this place, there is no more mourning or crying or death. In this place, this plush Glorious, renewed to the ends of this universe, the Garden of Eden, we have arrived in our place. He works with people, moves them to a place, and rules and reigns the people in this place with his fatherly care. The pictures. And so the application is quite simple, isn't it? When you read verses 23 and 24, the word of the Lord through the Spirit of God is telling us just rip up the first picture. Don't stare. Don't look at the picture. Turn from the picture and gaze upon picture number two, crying out to God for a renewed understanding and appreciation of the splendor and the realities of this reality 
that God is our Father who has created a family and we are journeying together to a fortune, namely new heavens and new earth. And so, as we bring this down, three areas to look at. I can't apply this for you. So it will be broad terms, but go home and ask God for help in these areas. The first one is, what is the first one? I'm going to start with love. Look at love. We're in the family, and so we have love. Love for one another. When we find our hearts lessening in care for, concern for, appreciation for, and love for his family, that's when we're starting to move to picture number one, and that will always collapse on self, and you'll be very, very selfish in your self-righteousness. The first one that I was trying to remember is faith. So in this picture, we see faith that God is truly our Father. And so the connection there is trust. When you are fretful, when you are afraid, when you think He doesn't have your best interest at hand, He's not carrying a stick. He is with love, in gentleness, correcting, training, and wooing you back to Him. Trust and worship, faith, love, and finally, hope. Beloved, we have got to wait. He's either going to come and whisk us away and bring us back into this new heavens and new earth, or we're going to die and instantly be in front of him without a glorified body and waiting still for that totality, that, that consummation of the fullness found in Jesus. And he brings us into the new heavens and new earth. We must wait. We must trust. We must care. And we must wait. This is picture number two. Is it enchanting? Does it grab your affections and your imagination? Gaze at it and you will see him and what the Christian life is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just seven verses. Seven verses that I truly need, and I hope others sense the need themselves. Oh, I pray that you will apply those seven verses by your Holy Spirit right into the pleats of our hearts, places where perhaps we've not even gone unexamined, and you begin to work it matchlessly to transform us gloriously for your honor. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.